Welcome to the show, everybody. We are, have a very special guest for you today. He is a multiple-time Juno Olympian, USA Judo Olympic coach, coaching some of our greatest champions, seventh-degree black belt in Judo. Welcome to the show, Jimmy Pedro. Hello, sir. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited. Uh, my pleasure. You know, uh, it's been a while since uh, I got to uh, see or talk with you. Uh, it was like right before the pandemic hit, uh, you came out to our school in Illinois. So uh, you've been uh, a busy bee in that time. So. <laughs> it was a tough time for everybody, right? I mean, oh. listen, I run a couple of companies. I run a dojo, so I know what everybody who owns a dojo went through during the pandemic. Yeah. I own a mat company at Fuji Mats, and we figured out a way to navigate through it. Luckily, everybody wanted to train at home, so we had some good success there. But on the gi side of the business at Fuji Sports, nobody needed any geese to train in because they trained by themselves, right? So you know, it was uh, it was tough for all the businesses, but we learned a lot. We're through it now. Yeah, moving on, right? Mo moving on. When speaking of geese, yeah, uh, for our uh, custom geese for Olympus Grappling Arts, we use Fuji. Uh, my particular favorite model, is Sakai. I uh, couldn't speak more highly of it. You guys do amazing work, and uh, yeah, and you guys have uh, uh, mat and facility design uh, going across the board, which we'll get more to that later. But what I love, uh, you know, a lot of people listening, uh, not just uh, jujitsu and judo and all that. Um, you know, all styles of martial arts, they may or may not even know your career. So I'd love to quickly dive into sort of kind of your, your origin story, if you will. I mean, you're practically born with a gi on with uh, your father, uh, Judo Olympian himself, uh, Jimmy Pedro Sr. Can you kind of go into how uh, that affected you growing up and, you know, inspired you to, to delve into the Judo? So my dad was, a, he, he never competed in the Olympics himself. He mm, was an okay. Olympic coach. Uh, he okay. competed in the Olympic trials. Um, national competitor, national place winner. But I grew up since the age of two, he ran a dojo. So I spent wow. every single day, you know, before I went to school and then every day after school when I was old enough to go to school at the dojo. You know, my dad ran the school Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night and Saturday morning. So I got picked up from school. We went right to the dojo and I hung out there from three o'clock in the afternoon till we went home at 9 p.m. You know, we had a, we had a whole bunch of weights set up. He had a weight room. He always made me do circuit training. Even when I was six years old, I would do circuits in the gym and then I could hang out and play with the kids. And then when class started, I was expected to participate in class. And when that class was over, the adults trained and I typically just ran around the mats or played hide and seek or did yeah. whatever, you know, but I grew up as a gym rat basically right. um, with a dad who was, you know, he, he would definitely be a, a, a drill sergeant right now if he was, you know, in a different life and didn't choose martial arts. <laughs> He'd be your, your your true drill sergeant in the military. <laughs> That's amazing. You said some very interesting, so many amazing stories when you came out here that I, I love other people to hear is, uh, you know, like your perspective of, you know, there's two ways to represent your country, uh, military and then in the Olympics. And that's kind of like your, your, your thought process going into that. You kind of go into the mindset uh, to think like an Olympian, Olympian because you guys are just wired differently. Let's put it that way. So, I mean, my dad, you know, you said, how did I get the inspiration to go to the Olympics? I mean, quite honestly, I was sitting in front of my TV set. I was five years old. It was the 1976 Olympic Games was, was going on. They were in Montreal. Mm -hmm. And it was an athlete there and by the name of Bruce Jenner, you know, who, who, oh, yeah. who won the decathlon. You know, and my dad was a huge fan of sports. There was always sports uh, on TV when I grew up. We watched football, we watched baseball, we watched the Olympics, we watched everything. And I would sit there with my dad, and I just saw his eyes light up when people from America would win a gold medal and, and win in the Olympics. And he's the one that kind of gave me that that dream and, and lit that spark to say, hey, you know, someday, you know, maybe you can go to the Olympics in the sport of judo. It's something I always wanted to do. I never got an opportunity to do it. But, man, it's someday that, that you could do that. And, you know, of course, when I'm six years old, I don't know what's going on. But, you know, I trained in judo. I participated. Um, you know, my dad had this theory that, you know, judo is good for the, you as a person, to develop as a person, right? So mm -hmm. if I know judo is good for you, you're going to go to judo. Whether you like it or not, you're going. And I was kind of a, a, a timid, shy kid. 
you know, growing up. I, I mean, my dad was an overbearing father. I was just a, okay. a timid, meek kid. If I if I spoke up out of line, I got a, a mouthful and sometimes a slap. So I never got out of line in my house, you know. Um, but, you know, but growing up in that household, you know, I, I you go to judo. It is what it is. There's no complaining. There's no whining. There's no saying you don't want to do it. There's no such thing. You don't have a choice. And he, he brought me up to believe that I didn't have a choice until I was 18. You're going to judo yeah. until you're 18 years old. And you know what? When we're going to a competition, you're going to every competition too because it, it's oh. good for you as a person to develop, to train oh, yeah. hard, to learn the lessons of martial arts, you know, to, to challenge yourself and compete. Win or lose, I don't really care. You're going to get out there. You're going to work your butt off. You're going to try your hardest, and we're going to overcome obstacles. And that's what I got brought up to, you know, to, to believe. And, Interesting. you know, he said, well, if parents can, can make you go to school because school is good for you and I'm going to get your head in life, yeah. if parents are going to make you eat your vegetables and eat a healthy diet because it's good for you as a child – his philosophy was, I'm going to make you do judo because I know it's going to be good for you someday. And he was right. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> obviously he was right. Yeah. So hundred percent in, in the good old days, you know, things were uh, instilling that, that, that sense of uh, work ethic. And, you know, sometimes, you know, it's great to go for your dreams, but you know, sometimes you don't have that choice to sleep in. You gotta, you gotta get up. You gotta get the, the work in. Uh, you also had an interesting point of view on this too. Like one of the very first in the USA, one of the very first, if not the first, martial art uh, was judo, right? Like we had the emissaries come over, the, Teddy, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, the president, was practicing. Can you kind of go into, I mean, you even reference like the Flintstones even demonstrated judo in the cartoons. Uh, can you kind of go into the effects of uh, judo, uh, how it started through the U.S., and then through the years it's kind of like tapered off in popularity? Yeah, I'm not a true historian, but – you know, judo, judo, because it became an Olympic sport. Well, after after World War II, the Japanese really wanted to make peace with the Americans, right? Mm -hmm. And their national sport was judo. So they sent ambassadors from Japan to America, and they throughout the entire country they sent instructors to teach judo wow. to Americans and and to make peace and to teach you know mind body philosophy and we can do this together and we're all in mutual welfare and benefit for all so it was their mission to come to america and grow the sport of judo it, you know in the after world war ii so you're talking about like 50s and early 60s well judo was the first olympic sport at the 1964 olympic games it was held in tokyo japan and they introduced the sport of judo as the first you know martial art to be in the olympics wow. um at that time because they had ambassadors here in America and because, you know, Teddy Roosevelt as, as a president was the president and he embraced this, you know, they kind of came here to America. He met with all the dignitaries to grow the sport and goodwill and the peace between the United States and Japan. So uh, the sport flourished. It grew. It was in the yeah. AAU, the Amateur Athletic Union. It was one of those sports way back when the AAU was in charge of all amateur sports in America. You couldn't make any money. But they were in charge of the sport and the way it was governed and the way it was played. Judo was part of the AEU. It was in every high school. It was in a, lots of colleges at the time. And it was a flourishing martial art. Probably the biggest martial art in the country at the time wow. was the sport of judo. And you saw it in Hollywood. You had Judo Jean LaBelle. You had all these people that were in Hollywood that was infiltrating films and the culture and things like that. Just like today, you've got Bruce Lee or you've got you know other martial artists, John claude Van Damme and... You know, yeah. the rest of them, it, that's what judo was back then. So if you look at the Flintstones, old television shows, yeah. you'll see a Tomoe Nagi or, yeah. you know, you watch yeah. them yeah. talk about a judo chop in the commercials and things like that. Like, it was the sport. Um, unfortunately, you know, other martial arts, I would say, unfortunately for judo, it's great for our culture. To right. Any martial art is great, right? But for the sport of judo, it was unfortunate. But other martial arts came, popped up. You know, the Koreans came and they brought Taekwondo. Yeah. Japanese started teaching karate and it became, you know, a big sport in this country. And uh, over the course of time, those people were very astute business people and learned how to make money franchising schools, growing schools. And, and judo being a combat sport that physically is a little bit more demanding. Yeah. And, you know, it's a little bit awkward for people to grapple. Not everybody likes to be touched and rolled around. So it didn't appeal to people back then. Um, and, it, you know, and they weren't smart business people running the sport of judo. It became too Olympic, too focused on competition, yeah. not focused anymore on developing the person, on developing confidence, on focusing on, you know, good technique and just drilling. It became a combat sport and it became too hard for people. And oh, most of the, the people in this country didn't do it for 
developing people and confidence, they got it. I can't wait for my students to compete and beat other people. And it got too competitive in nature, you know, and obviously the competition group, even in jujitsu, you know, the competition group is a very, very small subset of the number of 90% of people in jujitsu never compete. Right. You know, 10% do. And those people, that's great for them. And they flourish and they train hard and they're great athletes and they take it professionally. But most of the people want to do it for fun and for fitness and for culture and making friends. And, you know, I think judo got away from that aspect. Interesting. Yeah. Cause we have a, a, a Sambo affiliation with Vlad Kulikov and, and we, we obviously you're incorporating judo. Um, you know, those classes are always uh, less in number than the jujitsu <laughs> classes. And even then they're just like, Hey, let's start on the ground, which even in jujitsu competitions, you start on your feet, let alone self-defense. Um, yeah. uh, I want to go to real quick. The, uh, I mean, you were you were in the Olympics, uh, and you surprised us at the uh, seminar and brought your your bronze medals. I was like, it was a nice, really nice, cool surprise, kind of passing around, and um, even even like uh, like people were like almost the fake bite on it. You're like, wait, wait, don't don't. <laughs> but um, you know, you've made an amazing comment there, this, and not just for the Olympics. I think this applies to anybody in any walks of life, where you see the people on the podium. And getting the awards and, and, and on, on the Wheaties box, getting all the endorsement deals and stuff. What you're not seeing are the darker times. And those are the times that really um, uh, make the help make the champion. Can you go into that side of it with the overcoming losses and setbacks and challenges? Yeah, especially in today's world and social media, right? How, how prevalent you have access to everything instantly right now. And as soon as someone wins an event, boom. There's the picture. They're online. They took first place. There's their medal. They're on the top of the podium. You know, and everything is about success. Everything is about winning. It's about being first. Like America has this culture. You got to be the best or you're nothing. You know, and I think, I think yeah. it's hor I think it's horrible, right? Because at the end of the day, the difference between the gold medalist and the rest is, is a millimeter of a second. Or it's one technique that happened by happenstance and that person happened to win today. I might beat them every other match but they beat me today. And, yeah. you know, um, so what separates the best from the rest is, is the slimmest of margin. Everybody dedicates themselves. Everybody works their butts off. Everybody deserves to win. Ultimately it comes down to one day of competition where it's decided, but everybody sees the winners. And what they don't realize is that for every winner that's out there, that, that same person is the winner today, but you don't understand that last month or six months ago, they too had an injury. They too had some doubt. They too went through some hardship where, you know, they had a surgery on something. They didn't know if they were going to come back or be able to make it back to the top again. They were fearful they'd never compete again in the sport. They're rehabbing their way through. They're training hard. And luckily they got to the top that day. But all the other people went through the same struggles in life and had the same challenges and mm -hmm. just didn't get there. And what I want people to know is that every champion – has dark days. It doesn't have to be an injury and a surgery, but it has to do with losses. Not everybody wins every time, right? Nobody's undefeated. Yeah. I don't care who they are. They're not undefeated. Yeah. But all of like, oh, great. I have two bronze medals in the Olympic Games. But there were many days in my career when I was in Japan or I was in, you know, uh, the Soviet Union or wherever, where I went out and I competed and I thought I was going to win and I got crushed. You know, I, I got thrown free pwned. You know, and that's after sacrificing six months of my life, yeah. training twice a day, every day, doing my lifting in the afternoons, doing my running in the early mornings, skipping all of my family's like get togethers and holidays and parties and making all the necessary sacrifices to be a champion only to find out that I wasn't good enough that day and I got beat, you know, yeah. and, and that's hard. That's hard to deal with. But what you have to understand is that every champion loses and they lose frequently. You know, they don't always, they're not always top of the hill. Sure. They had their day in the sun and that's the day you saw them post that picture on Instagram, yeah. but they didn't post all the times they got their butt whooped yeah. or, yeah. you know, yeah. the surgeries they had to overcome or the challenges that they face in their life. And in order to make it to the top, you have to understand you're going to have those dark days and it is normal. It is what you do during those dark times that determines whether or not you're going to be a champion ultimately someday, because I believe it is mindset you know mind over matter you can do it if you believe you can do it you know and you've got to commit you got to believe in it you got to commit to it you got to make the necessary sacrifices you got to maintain that right attitude all the time and i was driven by the fact that my whole career i wanted to be the best in the world 
I wanted to be the best in the world in my sport. That was my goal as an athlete. And there were many competitions where I won gold medals, but it wasn't the world championships. You know, it wasn't the Olympic Games, but I was the be- I won the French Open. I won the tournament in Japan. I won these very prestigious events, but I didn't win the world. So what people kept asking me, what motivated you? What kept you going for so long? My goal was was to be the best in the world. It was tunnel vision. You know, I, I wanted to be, and, and it wasn't until 1999 that I became world champion. So I was 29 yeah. years old when I won my first world title, and I actually achieved my my dream of, of being the best in the world. And then, of course, my goal was I got to I got to win in the Olympics. I got to yeah. be an Olympic yeah. champion. You yeah. know, so a year later, after being number one in the world, a year later, I went to Sydney, Australia. I was supposed to win. I was odds-on favorite to win the Olympics. I think I won like 85 matches and lost four in four years. Like I was Man. had an unbelievable career fighting all the time against the best in the world. And I went to the Olympics in Sydney and I lost first round. I lost to the Korean first round by, by a penalty. I ended up coming back. I ended up taking fifth at that Olympic Games. Mm. But fifth in the Olympics for me, I wanted to be Olympic champion. That was a devastating, crushing loss. And – you know, it motivated me. I retired for like two years. I ended up coming back and, and trying to win one more Olympic gold in 20, 2004. I ended up making it to the bronze medal. That was uh, an amazing I, run too. Yeah. I mean, you could quickly go into that. Uh, it was just a, a nail biter. I just, you, you, you were on that mission. You can physically see that, that path. You go on that, that 2004 uh, path. Well, that was, you know, what I realized is that, you know, people get tired of what they're doing over and over again, right? You see athletes that, that, uh, oh man, I've been doing the same thing every day, all over, you know, it's mm. getting up, doing my workouts, going through contests. It starts to get old. You know, I've done it since I was five. So, you know, after 25 years of it, I was tired and ready to retire. I had three kids at home, but man, when you go, when you get back to normal life again, and this is probably what Tom Brady went through and the rest yeah. of them go through, but you get back to normal life and you're like, Wait a second. This really isn't. This isn't all that exciting. You don't have the high highs, yeah, in the low lows that you have in sports. Like whether you win or not, it, you're putting it all out there. You have that adrenaline rushing through your body. You have that energy. Win or lose, it's the value of the competition and the excitement, and it's something to look forward to and get ready for and and prepare and dedicate yourself mm-hmm. towards. So, taking the two years off of of judo from you know 2000 to 2002 gave me a whole new perspective. So when I came back in 2002, I was refreshed. I was energized. I had a new focus. It was all about me again, where I was competing for myself and trying to chase a medal. And I enjoyed every moment of every tournament and every session because I knew in two years, this is going to be over, you know, and I had, I made the finals, I think of every tournament I competed in from 2002 till the Olympic games, the only the only final I didn't make was 2004 and they're finished with the bronze medal, but it was with refreshed, relaxed, different attitude, less pressure, less like, I don't know, just, just relaxed and, and enjoyed every moment of it. Cause I knew it was going to be my last run. Uh, it's, it's uh, amazing. And, and, you know, just having that goal setting and you hear that a lot of athletes, not just Olympians, but any professional athlete, any kind where they, yeah, they, they stop. And it's just, that's a quite a shift your whole life's dedicated to that that per- one purpose and then shifting to something else. Can you tell me what it was like um, for 1996 when you won the bronze there? Uh, like, I mean, you had done 1992. You were in the Olympics uh, games there. But 96, uh, placing in that medal there, right? What, what is that? What was that? Take us in your mindset at that time. So, I, I mean, I relive it. I get goosebumps every time the 96 Olympics gets talked about or, or even mentioned. Um you know, you're competing in front of a hometown crowd, right? So, yeah. you know, I think there was 7,500 people in the stands at the Olympic Games for judo at that at that event. That's how many tickets they sold. Um, it was a sold-out atmosphere. For me, it was competing on my home turf. And I also had all of my relatives, all of my family, friends, people that helped me train since I was a little boy, drove to Atlanta. Like my whole Brown University wrestling team came down. They were in the audience. All my aunts, my uncles, people that my dad had trained through the years that had seen me grow up. Wow. Everybody was there to watch me compete. And at that Olympic Games, we started with the heavyweight division and we worked down to the lightest weights. Well, I was uh, 73 kilos, so I was the third to last person to go. 
So there had already been okay. four athletes that competed for America. We hadn't won any medals to that point in time. Most of our athletes got beat, you know, first or second round. So here I am, you know, and our big guns had already gone. Jason Morris had already competed. Joey Wanag had already competed. So the, the other medal hopefuls before me had already lost. So here I come. There's a lot of pressure on for yeah. the U.S. team to do good. But I had the time of my life. You know, when you can compete in front of a crowd that wants you to win, it was the first time ever in my life that I was competing at home in America oh. with a crowd that wanted me to win. Because you have to realize, up until that point, you know, my dad wasn't the most well-liked guy in America. You know, uh, everybody had seen me win since I was, you know, 15, 16 years old. So when I compete in the States, everybody wants you to get beat. Everybody okay. wants the little guy to beat, you know, yeah. you and see the see the champion be dethroned, right? So, mm -hmm. and there's never anybody in the stands anyway when you're competing in America. So no yeah. one's ever cheering <laughs> yeah. that loud anyway. So this is the first time there was electric energy in the in the stadium. And I had a phenomenal day. I mean, I ended up losing to a tough Mongolian in the second or third round. Um, he ended up catching me. I ended up losing. But my way back after that loss, I beat some of the best guys in the world back to back to back. I had to win four in a row, and I won all of them in spectacular fashion. I either armbarred them, I threw them free pwn, or you know, I, I won in dynamic fashion. And the last match was against Sebastian Pereira from Brazil. He was um, he was a tough player. He was junior world champion. I had beat him a couple times before that match. I was confident going in. But he he countered me early in the match. Like he, yeah. I came in to tell Toshi and he countered me for a Yuko, and I was down. Oh man! And you know, here I am trying to trying to win my first medal in the Olympics. I've been groomed since five years old <laughs> to get on the Olympic podium. Man, I didn't want anything to stop me from doing that. I was aggressive. I was going after him the whole time. And then there was just a, a point in time where we had to fix our belts, and the whole crowd just stood up and started chanting USA, and it was USA, wow. USA, and. I grabbed, I walked out there, grabbed his gi after that exchange. I came in a Tao Toshi. He fell down. I picked him up. I threw him Uchimata and I swore he pwned, raised my hands up. And forever I, I made the Olympic podium. I realized my dream and it was electric. It was yeah, awesome. Yeah. It was, it couldn't ask for a better magical, more magical moment. Um, you know, after I hugged everybody and took countless pictures, when I left the stadium, we're walking downtown Atlanta. And all of the venues were getting out from their sporting events. And when you've got a medal around your neck and you've got a yeah. USA jacket on, I got wow. mobbed. Oh, it it man. literally took me hours just to walk a couple blocks to get wow. out. Everybody wanted a picture to touch the medal, to sign an autograph. It took us hours just to get out of the venue to go see, to go to dinner or something. Wow. So it was <laughs> awesome, but it was great. That's amazing. And again, you know, people see that, but they don't see all that work that went into it. I mean, you, maybe you get an inkling or something, but you really, you know, to live it, it's a, a different factor altogether. You also like, um, you were mentioning when you came out, uh, there was one point where earlier on in your career, I think it was just starting out, uh, you know, professionally, uh, where you had a really bad neck injury and that almost ended the deal there. Can you kind of go into that? Cause I imagine that's probably the most nasty injury you had to overcome. It was for me, yeah. That was my worst injury. I was lucky. I was a very flexible person. I, I, I stretched a lot. And because I was doing martial arts since I was a little kid, mm -hmm. you know, it was just athletically I was meant to do judo, right? I mean, yeah. I've done it since a young age. So, and I was very flexible. So I never had any real injuries in my career except in, I got in, a, in the finals of a tournament. I was competing against the Russian in the finals of this Korean tournament. And um, he picked me up with the Tegaruma. And as I was coming down, I didn't want to take the fall because I didn't want to get thrown on my back. So I, I bridged. Oh, I put my head out. Wow. And I went like just – he just pile drove me straight through the floor. I hit my head. <laughs> then my feet came over and I did a back bridge. I, I, I wasn't hurt in that moment. Mm -hmm. But when I finished the fight, I lost the match. When I finished the fight, I didn't feel right. You know, something was wrong. And then slowly over time, I started getting more and more severe pain in my neck. And then shooting down my arm, you know, my whole right side of my body started becoming pins and needles oh, and my man. neck hurt. My neck hurt so bad that I couldn't keep my head up straight. I had to bend my neck and keep it in this position. Wow. And I had to keep my arm against my chest because I, when I, if I straighten my arm, it pinched the nerve. Yeah. And it was causing too much pain. So I just kept my arm like this 
everywhere I walked, everything I did, I saw doctors about it. I got MRIs done. And the first MRI result that came in, the doctor just said, he said, listen, you're, you're, you know, millimeters away from being paralyzed. He said, Whoa. you know, your sport career is over. He said, my goal for you is to just get you to function as a normal human being again. That's all I want you to do is just become a normal human being where you can lift your head up off your neck. You can have sense of, you know, feeling in your arm again. But in terms of like combat sports, no, you know, you're going to be done with combat sports. You can't run. You can't do anything with impact. I need you to lay low for a long time. You know, they gave me some neck braces. They gave me um, a traction machine to sit in every night to relieve the pain. Uh, I obviously gave me all kinds of anti-inflammatories and pain medications. Um, but I remember I was only 19 years old. I remember walking out of, wow, of the, I'm sorry. 1993, I was 23 years old. I remember walking out of that that doctor's office just in tears, like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is this is yeah. my life now, you know? And um, so it was it was devastating, debilitating, painful. You know, I, I just say, by the grace of God, you know, things worked out for me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think whether it was the traction, whether it was the anti-inflammatories, whether my body just healed itself, I, you know, I don't know. But, you know, it took a good six months before all of the pain went away and I started getting range of motion back and I could start using my arm again. The nerve regenerated wow. from my neck down to my hand. Oh, man. You know, I, I couldn't, my, my arm and my chest atrophied to like zero. Lifting, yeah. five, lifting five pounds wasn't even possible. Like I couldn't even, well, I couldn't even make my arm move. It, it, I had to like move it itself. To retrain the nerve, how to how to you know trigger again? Yeah, uh, it was it was a long journey back, but you know, I, luckily I came back. I was able to compete again, and obviously two years after that, I was standing on the podium in, in Atlanta. Yeah, so, and what real quick, Jim, while we're on the the mindset of that, like what man, what just kept you positive or like going through that? Like what kept the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak? Like I said, you know, you've got two choices, right? You mm -hmm. can either feel sorry for yourself and you can believe what people tell you, or you can make up your mind that that's not going to happen to you. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are some injuries, no matter what you do, you know, obviously quadriplegics and things like that. Like there's no hope. Like they don't have, they don't have a cure for that. But luckily for me, it was a matter of millimeters and there was a chance. And when there's still a chance where there's a will, there's a way. You know, and as long as it's physic, your physically body possibly could do it, then your mind can help you get there. And it would for me, it was, you know, at first it was just to get out of total pain and try yeah. to get some range of motion back. But once I started feeling a little bit better and I had some range of motion, I got in a pool and I just kicked on a kickboard every day. I kept my head down, put yeah. my head and I turned my head to the neck and I just used the kickboard just to try to get back in shape, low impact, just start working and working out again getting physical again, slowly but surely I got in a weight room and I just started like moving my arm myself and getting on a tricep machine okay. and, you know, trying to teach my arm to move again. Bench presses, like I always did bench presses where oh, yeah. my right arm wouldn't work and my left arm could push it up and then I had to force it through. And, you know, I, it was just, I wanted to come back. I didn't want that to be the end of my career. Yeah. And, and call it, you know, some of it is luck, right? Some of it's the grace of God. Some of For it's- sure. But you have to have a mindset of feel sorry for yourself or work through it, figure out, yeah. figure it out, like get it done. Yeah. And I had just to get it done mentality. So amazing. You know, and that, that real quick, I mean, that helped me out so much because uh, just before I met you, I had gotten, I was at like a red line, got rear-ended really bad. Some lady was on her phone going like 45 miles an hour, just poof. And uh, I, since then I would get like just crippling migraines, all training stop and it, it, there's nerve damage, all this stuff. And, and after a while, you just can't, I just, you can't help but like, uh, after a while you start feeling like this, this victim. And I just can't remember that story uh, from you. So you helped me out uh, personally so much and awesome. uh, you know, I'm on the mats and doing my thing still. So awesome. Great to love hear. It. Love it. Yeah. Love it. But you know, if there's a will is a way and it's so true. Um, I do want you to tell me, tell everybody this one story. Uh, like I said, everybody, Olympians minds are just wired differently. Um, and I believe you could train that into you. And there's some natural grit, I suppose. But there was, I uh, forget which event. I'm not sure if it was the Super Slam or what, but, um, or French Slam. But you were, uh, you had basically a root canal issue. Mm. Oh. <laughs> uh, can you go into that story? Because 
Uh, I mean, if it was me or any other normal person, I probably would be like, hey, let's find a dentist or something, but not you because uh, you had a competition. Go into that uh, story, please. That was insane. It was kind of, kind of, it was insane to be honest with you. I mean, but it was the French Open. So at the time, the Tournoi de Paris or the French Open was like the premier tournament in the sport outside of the World Championships and Olympic Games. And the Olympics only comes around every four years. And when I was an athlete, the World Championships was every two years. So the other major event every year was the Tournoi de Paris. So I was in France. I was at school at Brown University. I flew to Paris with the the U.S. U.S. national team, and I was supposed to compete in the in the in this event. And when I went to bed the night before the event, I started getting a throbbing headache. You know, just my head just started pounding, and it was all coming from a tooth. I had a toothache, and I laid down. I was trying. To, we were already jet lagged, right? We didn't fly in like a yeah. week before. Yeah. We fly in like two days before the event, so we're already jet lagged. Wow. I got to compete. I worked out when I got there, lost a little bit of weight. Weigh-ins were always in the morning of judo, so you have to sleep like starving to death and thirsty and everything else. Yeah. And it was the night before the event, and my head just started pounding, and my tooth started aching and hurting. It got to the point where it was driving me absolutely crazy, like it was a, a nerve pain like I've never felt before. So I got up out of bed, and I went into the bathroom, and I started like, I was trying to find something to jam into the side of my mouth to try to relieve the pain. Oh my goodness. It was driving me nuts. And, and, and finally, I got like a uh, a paper clip. And I tried to take the paper clip and wrap it through my tooth. And I was, I was actually trying to pull my tooth out because it was hurting so bad. And I was bleeding down my, my inside of my gums were bleeding everywhere. And I, I was just, I was in agony. And finally, at like 4 a.m., I just got up and I went to the team doctor. And I said, hey, you got to help me, man. I got... I got my tooth is killing me right now. Do you have any, you know, pain? And don't forget back then you couldn't take any pain medication because you get tested and you can't have pain meds in your system. Oh, wow. So, yeah. you know, I could get, take a little bit of ibuprofen up to a certain milligram of ibuprofen, but it still didn't help. And I said, doc, we, we got to go to the dentist. Like we got to call an emergency and I need to get this tooth fixed. So he actually at 6 a.m. We went downstairs to the reception area. They called in an emergency dentist. They took me to a dentist's place in Paris. The guy did a root canal. I was in the chair. The guy did a root canal on my mouth. And while and he after he got the root canal done, I ran from the dentist chair to weigh-ins. I made it in time to weigh in. And then I got it to fight in the event that day. I got no sleep. No sleep. <laughs> no sleep. And I fought I fought in the Paris Open in 19. So Oh my you know, God. I, I ended up doing really well. I ended up taking third place and it took place medal in the world in that tournament. That's and, crazy. Uh, where's the world is away, buddy. That's that's absolutely insane. That's absolutely insane. I, I couldn't wait for everybody to hear that story. <laughs> I mean, just just as soon as you said paperclip, I, I'm like, what you lost me. Uh, I I'll be uh, tapping out right there. Uh, and what was that like? So you mentioned a couple times the world championship at 73 kilograms, 1999. Boom! We you hit it. I mean, just that run of it. What what were your thoughts like? All that work and finally achieving that goal. You know, I think about when I look back. I think about every single sacrifice that was made to make mm -hmm. that moment happen. Like you think about you know walking in the rain as a 17, 18 year old young kid being in Japan. And walking a mile and a mile and a half to get to practice, soaking yeah. wet, getting there, changing, training for two hours with the best guys in Japan, walking home, you know, a, a mile, mile and a half to get back to the dorm, just to take a nap, to get up, to walk another mile, mile and a half to a second practice on the same day, train for another two, two and a half hours, and then walk back home again every day for six weeks, you know. The, the times where you'd get up and it'd be snowing like crazy outside in Boston, and it would be easy just to say, you know what, I'm not running today and say, no, you put your hat on, you put your gloves on, you put your shoes on and you're outside running in the snow. Or every time you lifted that extra bit of weight or you did that extra round of Randori, like all of the sacrifices, all the times you had to cut weight, mm -hmm. you had to miss, you know, your own birthdays or you had to miss your own parties or graduations or whatever it was like, Everything goes into that one day and that one moment, and it's all for a reason. Yeah. You know, and, and it doesn't happen by accident. You don't just show up without making the sacrifices and pray and set goals and, like, hope you win. It takes years and years of dedication 
every single day when nobody's watching, you've got to be self-disciplined enough to know that you're not skipping, you're not missing because in order to make it to the top, there's no shortcut, you know, yeah. and, and getting the opportunity in 99 to compete. It was in, it was in Birmingham in England. And in my day, I spent a lot of time um, in England training because Neil Adams, he's the commentary. He's yeah. the voice of judo. Neil Adams had a club in England and I went to his dojo many, many times. I stayed with his kids and trained with his kids, not his own kids, but kids from his school. Mm -hmm. We, I became really good friends with all of them. All of those knuckleheads were up in the stands yelling for yeah. me the day I was fighting <laughs> in the world. But it was like it was a hometown crowd. Yeah, Everybody in the UK yeah. wanted to see me win. And uh, it was awesome. Like I had a great run. Oh, we see the event. It's a world championships. I, I, you know, the guy who won the Olympics in, in 2000 in Sydney from, from Italy, he was a European champion, Matt Aloni. I beat him in the second round. I pinned him in the in the world worlds. I pinned him free pwn. You know, I beat some wow. great players from Georgia that day. I beat Sebastian Pereira in the semifinals. Um, in the finals, I had Vitaly Makarov from yeah. Russia. Um, you know, and ever since I was a little kid, right? I told you I watched the '76 Olympics on TV. Well, you know, the Montreal Olympics was the last one that was a unified Olympics. You know, in in 1980, you know, '80 was a boycott year because it was in Moscow. 84 was a boycott year because it was in Los Angeles. So growing up, I grew up with the Cold War. So right. I always envisioned someday that I would fight in the Olympic final. It would be U.S. versus USSR for yeah. the finals of the Olympics. And for me, it just happened to be the world championships. It was me versus <laughs> the Russian. Yeah. You know? yeah. And <laughs> what's funny about the final was I had a really, really hard semifinal match. I fought Sebastian Pereira oh, from yeah. Brazil in the semis. And it was a dogfight. Like, I barely won. Yeah. You know, it was back and forth. I scored a, a Yuko. He scored a Yuko. I got some penalties. He got some penalties. He scored on me. And then I ended up throwing him, you know, with maybe 45 seconds left to, to get enough for the win. Like, I came off that mat. I was exhausted. I was, like, spent. And I remember, like, saying, Coach, I just need a little breather. I need to relax for a little. Sit down and recover. Because now I got to fight the finals, which is only, like, you know, an hour later. Yeah. And uh, the Russian, his semifinal, I think, lasted 10 seconds. Oh, he man. smashed the kid in the semis. And after the semis was over, he was running around, like, with all this energy, screaming. <laughs> he was so excited to be in the finals. And my coach looked at me, Steve Cohen. He goes, Jimmy, you got to get up for this match. We made it to the final. You got to win this one. You got to, Steve, you got to get up. I go, hey, let me relax. Dude, yeah. like, I just got off the mat. Yeah, don't worry. I'll, I'll be ready for the finals. Like, yeah. trust me, I'll be ready. Yeah. This is the moment I've been waiting my entire life for. I'll be ready, and I was, you know. And it was, yeah. you know, I ended up beating the Russian pretty handily. I think it was, yeah, two, Yuko, two Yukos, and he had a penalty, and I scored a coke at the end. But I, he was a tough fight. He almost scored on me. It was a good, good match. The whole crowd was behind me, but being able to step up on that podium, yeah, oh and God. say, you know, hear them say those words, and now. From the United States of America, world champion Jimmy Pedro, and that's—I remember those days, and it was the greatest moment of my life. It really was, absolutely, uh, absolutely amazing, bar none. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and I remember we also had, had uh, discussions on um, just you know people listening also are just just training uh, ninety competitors, just at, you know uh, for hobby or whatnot, and I think it's important where like you're we're talking about training a throw. So whatever the throw is, uh, you had this great mentality of like, you know, people like, Hey, am I going to do uh Osota Gari, uh, to my left and 50% over there and 50% to the right versus let me do 100% of my training on Osota Gari this direction. Uh, cause you go into your mentality on that percentage of training, uh, even reps on each side versus dedication on what's yeah, I mean, if you think about it, right, you know, at least in judo, right, in the sport of judo, it's good to have throws that go both directions but because you have to be able to throw in different directions. But my philosophy has always been you have to pick what side you're going to be. You're either going to be a left-sided player or a right-sided player. And every practice that you go to, you're going to train your side. So I'm a lefty. So I did left-sided Toshi, left-sided Ochigari, left-sided Osotogari. All of my throws were from a left stance as a left-sided player. And if you do that 100% of your time with a lefty stance, you're developing, you can spend twice as much time as a lefty than you can if you split your time 
50% right, 50% left. Well, if you do something 100% versus 50%, what are you, you going to be better at? You're going to be better at something you do 100% of the time, right? You're going to be stronger from an offensive standpoint and a defensive standpoint. You're going to be stronger if you do 100% of the time this way. So that was my philosophy. And, you know, and it also from a gripping standpoint, you can deal with every situation, you know, you can, yeah. because yeah. you're dealing it from a left-sided stance versus, you know, 50-50. Well, let's say the guy that you're going against does 100% of his work on the left side. You do 50-50, and this guy happens to be the best guy in the world. So you're only working 50% of the time against the guy who's the best in the world who spends 100% of the time that way. The odds are against you if you yeah. do that. You know, yeah. so you perfect your craft, you know, be a specialist and whatever. You, again, same philosophy goes with if you did 20 throws, mm -hmm. let's say you learn 20 throws. Are you better off knowing 20 throws like adequately? Or is it better to have three throws that you spend 100% of your time doing that you can throw everybody with? You want to yeah. be a perfectionist. And you look at all the champions in judo, you go through the years and you say, okay, Kosei Inoue. Kosei Inoue did Uchimata. Mm -hmm. All he did was Uchimata. Yeah. You know, Shohei Ono, he's an Uchimata player. Like, he throws everybody with Uchimata. Like, if you can't yeah. stop with Uchimata, you don't beat him. And nobody right. could because they become <laughs> Olympic champions, right? Yeah. But they, they don't do 20 throws. They do a few throws, but they master those throws so that they're perfectionist at it. That makes so much sense. You know, uh, and, you know, you learn the whole run of the Kodakan, you know, A to Z. Um, and I, I like you even mentioned, too. I'm like, I asked you, you like, hey, if you're learning, uh, let's say, Ogoshi, um, you know, you know, how many times of you know, how long would you train that? You like some depends on the focus, sometimes a whole week, sometimes a whole month, uh, which I thought was amazing, right? You just you, you focus on the, those three throws, yeah, for example. The idea is to get better every day when you yeah. train, get better every day. If you know, I was a Tayo Toshi player, if I can walk in the dojo and throw everybody with Tayo Toshi, mm -hmm. I, I probably don't need to work on my Tayo Toshi anymore, right? But not anymore, right. I'm still gonna like right. do what you told me, but. Maybe when I go to practice today, I'm going to focus on trying to throw everybody with a Neo Soto Gari or with an Ochi Gari because yeah. I, I got to expand my repertoire. I got to get better at something else other than my Tao Toshi. It's a throw that goes with my Tao Toshi, but it's from the same grip. And how else am I going to score? Because if they're just waiting on tile, they're going to stop you. You've got to right. have an arsenal of techniques, three or four, that you master, that go together, that, that the, your opponent doesn't know is coming. You know, so... I would always say, okay, you want to learn – you've already got this throw. What can we add to your judo? Okay, well, maybe we we'll add an opposite side. You pull and say an agi, so when you're standing one-handed, you can go the other direction. Great. Now go to the dojo, start doing reps of Uchikomi's left side, you know, opposite side. Yeah. You pull and say we, throws on the crash pad that way. Start forcing that technique in Randori as much as possible. And it's about getting reps, getting practice, getting better at a new throw all the time. I love that. I love that. You know, and another thing for people that are training, you know, mid training now, um, you know, the subject of plateauing and eventually quitting, you know, the, the dreaded words, um, you know, what are some good piece of advice for people training right now that may be experiencing, like you said, we all kind of go through challenges or whatnot and overcoming it. There's, there's that factor, but what are some good training uh, uh, goals and mindsets they can have obviously outside of listening to the instructor and doing the, that class that day what's a good mindset for uh, people to have learning i think if you're getting a if you get in a rut make a change you know try something different you know it's, it can be a simple thing as like you know i, I know it's in the jiu-jitsu world it's really not that um acceptable but you know if for judo it is go somewhere else like go to a training camp somewhere be, be be in a new atmosphere be in a new room be around new bodies fresh people to work out with like Go out and, and, you know, my dad used to send me to camps all over the place. I went to England. I went to yeah. Japan. I, you know, I went to Germany to train. I went to different places so I would get exposed to different people, different techniques, different philosophies. And then I would bring back something. My dad would always say, okay, great. You're training hard. You did 10 rounds of Randori. That's awesome. What did you learn? Yeah. Like, what new technique did you pick up? Like, show me something that you learned while you were there that we can give back to our students. You know, he was always pressing me to – to get better and to learn more stuff, you know? And I think if you get in a rut and you're, and you're flat and you're tired of going to the same practice, training with the same people, learning from the same instructor, 
you know, ask your instructor, hey, coach, you know what? There's a training camp in Florida or there's a training camp in Boston, wherever it is. I want to, do you mind if I go to that camp? If you've got a really good instructor, he's not going to mind because you've got two options. You either quit the sport and he loses a student who's flat and dead and not going anywhere, or he sends a student out to be motivated, energized, refreshed, learn something. He comes back as the cool kid with the new trick yeah. that he can yeah. share with the students. And he's motivated because he's around people that were bigger, better, stronger than he was. He's like, man, there's another level out there I got to get to. You know, now yeah. I know why I'm training. Now I got to know why I got to push it to a new level. That's you know? an ama that's amazing advice. Uh, it makes sense too. You, you, you know, the more versatile you are, and, and change that up. Uh, and not to mention, you know, the other side of things. We went to your career, but like the other part of your, half of your career of, of being an amazing coach, uh, Kayla Harrison, Travis <laughs> Stevens. I got I got the pleasure of interviewing Travis. Um, you know, going in, you know from a coach's standpoint, you know what what are as a coach, what are, are your goals? Uh, with a uh, an athlete of yours, what do you? Tr how do you know when they're uh, ready for competition? How are you preparing uh, them for competition? Like general things, people maybe can delve into uh, their training uh, regimens. So it's it's really different. And what I've what I've come to realize is that you you have to be a specialist. Mm. You you can't be a coach at every level. It's very very hard to do. In other words, it doesn't mean I can't coach every level, but I have to have a focus on the level I'm going to be coaching at to be the yeah. best coach I can be. And what I really admire is the sport of wrestling has this. It's already built into their infrastructure. In other words, when you're a young kid, you go to a youth wrestling club and you wrestle with youth kids. And that coach knows his lane. His job is to teach people the basics of the sport of wrestling and keep them in the sport, right? Yeah. Then after youth wrestling, you go on to high school wrestling. So now you've got a different coach. You're with a different set of kids and you're wrestling for your high school team. And that high school coach is a really good coach. He doesn't know all the Olympic level techniques, but he knows enough to make you the best high school wrestler you can be. Right. And he knows yeah. enough, you know, that's not the basics anymore. It's a little bit beyond the basics. Then for the kids that make it through high school and do really well, they go on to the college level. And again, a right. new set of coaches who focus at a higher level that the technique in the room is at a higher level. The coaches know a lot more technique than the youth wrestler coach and the high school wrestling coach. Right. And the level keeps going up all the way till the guys that retire from college, they go on to freestyle wrestling and they go wrestle for a, a pro professional club, right? They're in yeah. this, you know, a, an elite training center or Penn state training center or Iowa Hawkeye training center. They go on to a training center with Olympic level coaches. They have to learn a little bit new techniques. It's a little different than the, than the college, but every coach knows his lane and there's a natural progression of, Take this kid, get him to the next level. Then you're in high school, pass him on to college. You're in college, pass him right. on to the Olympics. Right. And they keep getting handed off. The sport of judo ends up where a kid starts with you at five years old. Okay, great. You're teaching the basics. Well, when he moves up to 13, because you've known him so well, you want to be his 13-year-old coach. Then yeah. you're, now when he becomes a senior athlete, now you're trying to coach him at the senior level. Well, what happened to all your little kids back there? Because you can't go to all the little kids tournaments and all the middle school tournaments right. and all the yeah. high school tournaments and go to the Olympic level. You're not, you're not doing any justice to somebody in your team. And I realized it myself. When I first retired from the sport, I coached kids because I had kids. They were five years old, six years old. Okay. So yeah. I started teaching my kids judo and I had a kids program. I didn't have any black belts. I didn't have any elite athletes. I focused on my kids. So I had a thriving kids program. We went to all the junior nationals, all the local tournaments, and we did wonderful. Team did great. They won all the tournaments, and it was, you know, while everybody won medals, and great. Well, after a period of time, USA Judo had asked me to coach the developmental team, meaning kids okay. under the age of 23, somewhere between 16 and 23, can you start coaching these kids? So I started traveling around the world with this group of athletes, bringing them into my training center and focusing on that age group. When I did that, I neglected – my junior kids because I couldn't give them the time and focus because I wasn't there anymore. Yeah. And then when those kids grew up to be Kayla and Travis and everybody else, I was the senior coach, but the middle suffers and the little suffer because again, you're focused on Olympic level. Your practices that you run are different right. for every level. You have to run a different practice that, that accommodates if it's little kids, it's about learning. It's about drilling. It's about, you know, mechanically doing everything all the time to develop a good habit and a good base of judo. Yeah. You know, at the, at the um, 
teenage level, you're starting to develop some specialized techniques. So you're looking at each kid and saying, okay, this kid's tall. He should be doing Haraya Ghosh or Sotogari, you know, good Ashiwaza. This kid's short. He should be doing Sayanagi, Sode Sode. Like he should be doing these style in your, you're yeah. catering it, but you're also teaching them because they don't know it well enough. <laughs> but when you get to the elite level and you finally get Kayla and Travis and people like that, that are already developed, all you're doing is you're training them physically. You're training them mentally. You're getting them to the right camps. You're making little adjustments in changing behaviors so that they can win matches. It becomes more about training and strategy than it does teaching technique. So your practices are much different for every level and you can't do it all. Right. Yeah. That, that, that may, yeah. Be a specialist in something, right? Uh, that makes so much more sense. Um, yeah. And you, another amazing thing I, I've always, uh, you have some amazing, uh, uh, video courses and instructionals, uh, BJJ fanatics, judo fanatics, I believe the guy who runs it was was one of your or co-owner uh, was one of your students, correct? He started judo with me years ago, Mike Zenga. Yeah, he was one, 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 actually probably like in the first five years of running my school. He was one of my when I first opened my academy. <laughs> within five years, he was one of my judo students. And, and and he's you know that's blown up and has amazing instructionals and you have you uh, Travis everybody has you have some amazing instructionals but in particular I always loved about your game is your grip fighting specifically and it's and it's uh it's like the discipline of it the fun thing obvious to get to the throw but if you can't get to the throw uh, what's the point can you go into your just briefly your 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 mental game or your thought process on or philosophy on grip fighting. If you think about it, it's the first thing you do in a, it's the first thing you do in, in, in a combat sport is grab your opponent, right? In jiu-jitsu, yeah. they grab they grab the gi. In judo, you grab the gi. In, in wrestling, you collar tie, grab a wrist, whatever it is. You touch your opponent. If you touch your opponent the wrong way and you get out of position, you lose. You get taken down. You get thrown. Yeah. So if you can learn to put your hands on your opponent in such a way where you can get all of your offense up going, and at the same time, you can prevent your opponent from getting their offense going. You put yourself in an advantage to win the match from right off the rip, right? Right from the beginning, you're setting the tone to have a better, yeah. to win the match. And then at the end of the day, the goal of competition is to win. I don't care what anybody tells you. Yeah. <laughs> Losing sucks. Yeah. Right? It just does. Losing sucks. Winning is fun. Right? So yeah, then, yeah. you feel better about yourself. You're motivated to train the next time. You... You know, when when someone asks how you did, I don't know anybody that says, I got my ass kicked. Like, they, right. they like saying that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I did great. I beat this guy. It was awesome. I threw him with this pro, you know? So it's good to tell positive stories about yourself, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, yeah. It's like, you know, a, a soccer game. How'd your team do? Ah, we lost 10 to nothing. Like, that's not yeah. a good feeling, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. but systematically gripping is so important, yet it's such a neglected part of the game. And really what is. people don't realize is that organically, the best countries in the world, their 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 athletes grip. They don't have a system that they teach, but because they have so many people doing the sport in their country, yeah. if they don't grip the right way, they get thrown and they don't make it to the top. So they don't. So all the best athletes from Russia, all the best athletes from Japan, they have their own system of gripping. It's just not taught in a systematic way. So what I did was, as an American, when I trained overseas, like man. Why can't I get my hands on this guy? Like, wh why can't I get my attacks off? And I learned, like, this is how you keep that position. This is, you know, inside control does matter. Not letting the guy regain in inside control matters. So pay attention position. And when you're trying to move your hand inside, you watch the guy, what he does to prevent you from doing that. And you're like, oh, that's how you, you know. And so it's putting all those pieces together into a system of gripping, which is grip like a world champion. And yeah. that's what I developed. And my dad, from day one, when I was a kid, he believed in gripping. So he taught that to me at a very okay. young age. Uh, he taught me the basics. So, and, and I was a left-sided judo player. Everybody in my dojo at one period of time was left-sided. So my dad, we didn't have any righties because he oh. systematically and purposely said, lefties have an advantage in judo. Let's make everybody lefty in the school. So at growing up, I knew how to play every single lefty, any. Wow. Any size, any age, any strength, I could hold my own because I had gripped so much against left-sided players. That's amazing. And, and, and even there, uh, not s switching sides, uh, you know, dedicate 100% because you're always going to 
uh, you guys definitely, definitely go uh, grab that video on uh, Judo Fanatics and BJJ Fanatics. Uh, it's it Grip Like a World Champion. It's amazing. Uh, you literally, it, it's a catch-all. It's like, like I say, it's like your force field, so to speak. You know, <laughs> if you're a medio, if you're a mediocre judo judo player and you don't grip now, it will make you a strong judo player. Like it'll elevate your game to a whole nother level. Understanding the gripping part of it, because people don't know why they can't attack. And the reason they can't yeah. attack is because they've got their hands in the wrong place. Yeah, uh, 100%. And, uh, you know, that that just helps you overcome uh, more things. And, like, like I think even in, in watching that video, you're mentioning, like, this is not the, the, you know, this is the discipline part. And you just spend that extra energy on doing that. Or because you see so many times, right, Jimmy? Like, uh, okay, go. And the guys just walk at each other and just get that natural, like, you know, sleeve, uh, lapel okay. grip. Uh, and they're happy with it. Now it's like, okay, well, who's who's bigger, stronger, faster, better technique? It matters even more now uh, versus let me get a better grip. I, I love that. Absolutely promote that. Uh, let me ask you more as we're kind of wrapping up here, uh, more of a, a, a fun side of the questions here is um, – if they're like we talked when and you won't remember, but when you, we came out, we talked about Karate Kid and that movie blew up and every, all of a sudden everybody's doing uh, karate schools and, you know, going to karate schools and stuff. So if they did like a judo kid or something equivalent to that and it just blew up, um, what what would be a, an amazing uh, story you think to play? Uh, whether motivation or whatever for a judo movie? And uh, what do you think the fallout would be? Because there's not a lot of judo schools. What do you think the solution to that would be? So Travis Stevens and I are slowly changing the fact that there aren't a lot of judo schools. So one of the things that's happening organically is that the sport of jiu-jitsu, it's exploded to a whole other level in this yeah. country. And everybody is good on the ground now. You know, obviously mm -hmm. when, when the Gracies first came to the United States – the level of jiu-jitsu was nowhere near what it is today, oh, right? Yeah. So the level of jiu-jitsu is, is so much so much higher than ever before. Mm -hmm. It's come to the point where the big difference between one jiu-jitsu guy and the next jiu-jitsu guy is the takedown game. Oh, yeah. You get yeah. the takedown. So a lot more emphasis is being put on stand-up in jiu-jitsu. And as a result of that, they're looking for good places to learn stand-up takedown. So – We've put together a coach's certification program for jiu-jitsu instructors. And so we've now partnered with – we partnered with Shanji Hibiro and the Six Blades Jiu-Jitsu uh, yeah. Association. And we taught, you know, Victor Hugo and Shanji and um, – and, and his, all, of his, all of his instructors who run schools, we taught them level one judo. We're going back and teaching them level two judo. And they're starting to introduce judo into their curriculum at their schools. And we're going to, we're doing this with the Taekwondo organization, the global traditional martial arts. We're certifying wow. them in, in judo. We've got some regular us judo people that want to be certified. So we're training them. And it's not just, you know, how to do this throw, how to do that. It's really like learning posture. We forgot how to, how important posture is in the sport of judo. Yeah. How to put your hands, how to properly off balance your opponent. Like we're going to all the basic level first because in order to have great technique, it starts with basics. And if you don't yeah. have the basics down, so we're teaching the basics. We have level one through level 10. We're, and we're going to teach these people how to run judo academies inside of their jujitsu and taekwondo schools. So that there'll be a, an answer for where people go to learn judo when we're done with this. Oh, and this is all through something called the American Judo System. It, the URL is usajudo.com. Travis and I have got certification programs. That's where all of our videos live. People become a member on the website, um, and they can also take our certification courses. Okay. We're expanding it to also include judo competitions. So we've partnered with a, a group called New Way Combat, and we've partnered with them to bring judo events at all of their competitions yeah. so that people can compete in local judo tournaments. They have 60 events. It's amazing. We'll have judo events all over the country for people to go, and we'll have novice divisions intermediate divisions and advanced divisions so the jiu-jitsu people can compete in the novice judo and they can learn and compete and have wow. fun and you know learn the sport the right way mm -hmm. and then um so we're going to grow it through tournaments we're going to grow it through certifications and we're growing through other martial arts but whose story would be the best to yeah. me you know 
Kayla's story is, I mean, the oh, American yeah. the American story is overcoming obstacles, right? It's all about triumphing, good over evil, or you know, coming through some sort of major obstacle that the person ends up becoming a champion, and that's kind of the, the Rocky story, right? Mm. I mean, you know, Kayla came from Ohio. She came from, you know, underprivileged, you know, sort of um, low-income place in Ohio. Mm. She found judo. Through the sport of judo, she started traveling the world. She got fairly good at the sport. You know, she was sexually abused by her coach. Yeah. She hated the sport. She was um, suicidal. She came to Boston. She found new purpose. We got her on the right track. Wow. She became an Olympian. She went on to become the first Olympic champion in the history of the sport of ever. First gold medalist, the American Cinderella story. Fantastic. A year after that, they find out that she's got a major problem with her knee because she wanted to go on and be Olympic champion again and try to repeat. She underwent like total reconstruction of her knee. They had to retwist her bones, break it, put it in the right place, fix her knee alignment. It took her 12 months to overcome. She didn't compete on the international circuit for 12 months. She was, you know, overweight, out of shape, you know, because she had to sit down and do nothing for so long. Yeah. She had to rebuild herself, come back on the circuit. She ended up taking a bronze, I think, at the World Championships. Didn't have a great run between, you know, coming back and winning that bronze. But that bronze motivated her to compete. 2015 wow. Worlds, she didn't place in the 2015 Worlds. She lost. She lost second round. You know, so she, but came back and then repeated as Olympic champion in 2016 yeah. Yeah. and two-time gold medalist, the most successful in the sport ever, and then goes on to have a storied career in MMA. Like, yeah, like, nothing from rags to riches. You know, she just signed a multi-million dollar deal with the PFL six-fight deal. Right. Yeah. She's going to be set for life when she's done with the contract. Like, from rags to riches, that's the American story. That's the judo way. That that's wow! It is, it is an amazing story. There's so much to her. Um, and then uh, closing words for people listening uh, that are uh, thinking about starting up uh, judo, jujitsu, MMA, any martial art, uh, or maybe people are uh, currently studying and are just kind of like not really coming in much or whatnot. Just something to kind of motivate them. Like you know, why is why is martial arts even worth it? Oh, it's the absolute best thing you can do for yourself or to do for one of your children. The, the just the the amount of discipline you get from having to show up every day to answer to an instructor to to be present and pursue you know pursue training to get better it gives you confidence that you can achieve anything in life right it helps you overcome adversity you know you don't worry about getting getting kicked down or or, or you know not doing well on a test or it because you, you have to deal with anxiety every day in the dojo when you're working with a stranger. You know, yeah. or when you're competing in an event, you have to deal with that stress and that energy. The other thing is when you're participating in this, in any martial art, you're not thinking about anything else in life. You, you know, yeah. you're going yeah. against somebody else. So while you're, while you're training in martial arts, you're not worrying about what happened on social media and not worried about what happened with your job. You're not thinking about. You're not thinking about, you know, maybe somebody that's sick in your family anymore. You're focused on you and your opponent, and that's it. You're in the moment. You're living in the moment, and especially more now more than ever with social media and distractions, you're living in the moment when you're doing martial arts. So you will enjoy it thoroughly. Your mind will be engaged. Your body will be engaged. You're going to be fit. You're going to be bigger. You're going to be stronger. You're going to be more athletic. You'll be able to protect yourself. Um, and all I can say is once you get started, don't stop. When, you're, when your body or your mind says, oh, I can't go to training. I'm too sore. Go. Your body will heal. It will overcome. It'll adapt. Don't miss practice. You know, continue to go regularly. Give yourself a good year. Go, yeah. go twice a week or three times a week. Whatever the commitment is from your school, go to every practice. Show up. Be present. It'll change your life. I promise. Absolutely amazing, Jimmy. Well, you had uh, mentioned uh, uh, some things to look forward to bringing – uh, judo to the competitions and then other jujitsu schools, which I'm more than happy to talk to you more about. I actually, when you came out, it was like the beginning of 2020. Uh, I was talking about that. So I'm so happy to hear that's moving forward. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to direct people towards? You got the Pedro Judo Center, which I, by the way, would love to uh, come out and visit and train with you guys. Anytime. Um, Everybody's anytime. always welcome at my school. Come try judo, come work out with us, come learn, come train. Always open door.
for sure. Amazing. Right on. Pedro's Judo Center, that's my academy. That's my school. We actually have 331 students at my Judo Academy. We don't teach any other martial art except for Judo. We have 331 students. Wow. So this, probably one of the biggest schools in the country that yeah. does it professionally. Um, I, I'd say. Yeah. Above and beyond that, um, you know, I run Fuji, Fuji Martial – Fuji Mats is the company that builds the, the training centers. You want to design a training center – or even your home dojo, go visit us at fujimats.com. Best products, best people. I've created an unbelievable culture within the businesses that I've built. The people that, that work there are all tied to martial arts. I've got Division One wrestling champions. I've got jiu-jitsu jiu champions, black belts. I've got guys that run schools working for us. They all live the martial arts dream, and uh, they're happy to help you you know, put, create a dream facility or outfit your kids with the best equipment amazing jimmy uh i'm gonna wrap things up end things off now uh jimmy thank you so much for being on man it's a, a pleasure catching up with you always been an inspiration to me and 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 so many other people uh throughout your career and you just keep bringing the greatness so i, I really appreciate it thank you sir awesome thanks for listening everyone hope you enjoyed this episode of the warrior's edge podcast for more great talks and interviews on all things grappling be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. We also take topic recommendations, so feel free to reach out to us on our Instagram or Facebook pages for that. And if you're ever in our area, you're welcome to come in and train at our academy, Olympus Jiu-Jitsu. Until the next one, keep training.